welcome to Rising. I'm Jessica Burbank, and I'm here with the one and only Amber Duke, here to bring you Rising Fridays together from the Rising Studio here in Washington, D.C. Good morning, Amber. Good morning. So excited to be in person. It's in great. person, in yeah. real life. In, the in real, real life. Tell us what's going on. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaker Mike Johnson's standalone Israel funding package is dead on arrival after passing the House last night. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the bill a joke and pledged to kill the measure before it could make it to President Biden's desk. Now, President Biden also pledged to veto the $14 billion package on the grounds it politicized the war in the Middle East and that it wasn't enough for Israel. Vice President Harris defended that posture earlier this week. Let's hear what she had to say. The White House has said it will veto any bill um, that doesn't include both Israel and Ukraine. Uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson has said that he wants to do Israel first alone and then move on to Ukraine and the U.S. border. What is the path forward there, and is there room for the White House to negotiate on um, U.S. border immigration issues in that package? Well, first of all, we're not negotiating that, and we've been very clear that we must stand by the role of the United States as it relates to our global responsibility to uphold and defend international rules and norms and what is right. And so our, our proposal is that there be aid given to both places, to Israel and to Ukraine. And we are standing by that, as you have said. The President has been very clear. If any bifurcation of that should occur, uh, he will veto the bill that you have um, referred to. But let's also be clear that these folks who want to be considered as leaders in the midst of global crises of a proportion we have not seen in a very long time are playing political games with people. Now, Punchbowl News caught up with Speaker Johnson this morning. He offered no comment on what he'll push for in Congress's next government funding measure as it relates to cuts. Today is November 3rd, and funding expires on November 17th. So it sounds like if I was Mike Johnson, I would have known very well that the Democrats would never go for the IRS cuts. It seems very obvious that they put, push this through knowing that, uh, to have someone who's very pro-Israel, someone like Chuck Schumer, immediately dismissing the bill. I mean, I don't know if they're going to be able to get something pushed through before the 17th. Yeah, it's going to be hard. And, and there's also disagreement within the Republican Party, too, on this, because Mitch McConnell is in favor of passing a continuing resolution that would fund the government probably through January or April. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want to split up funding into all of these different line item packages, which is what Mike Johnson wants to do. He's more of a fiscal conservative when it comes to government spending than Mitch McConnell. So they're in a disagreement on that. They're in disagreement on the decoupling of the Israel and Ukraine aid package. If it were up to Mitch McConnell, he would be pushing through what President Biden wants, which is those two things together and a lot more aid than what was passed in this latest bill. Um, but Mike Johnson has made it clear that he is fine with, I guess, not being in cahoots with the Senate and not being in cahoots with Mitch McConnell. He's going to do his own thing, which I think is respectable. But there is also the question of what you're actually going to get done legislatively. And right now, they're at a roadblock. So we'll see what go what happens here. I didn't mind the IRS cuts. I don't, have, I don't like the IRS, so I was kind of excited about it. But 
it's one of those things where they have a uh, Congress people do this all the time where they will pass legislation that they know isn't going to get through the other chamber for the sake of making a point. And then they fundraise off of it and they turn it into advertisement campaigns and all of this other nonsense. And in the meantime, we're rapidly approaching this November 17th potential shutdown. Yeah, and Mike Johnson can say, you know, look how great I'm doing as speaker. It was all a mess before I came in, and now we have this bill that passed the House very easily. It wasn't a lot of back and forth, but how good is a bill that's not, never going to pass in the Senate? I think that's the big thing here. How effective is a legislator if they're pushing through bills to the upper house and they're just going to reject them and send them back? I, I can understand Mike Johnson wanting to keep good on the promises he made to get elected as speaker, which I'm sure he did. But I, I think knowing Mitch McConnell is not going to want to go for lumping together all of the spending. I, I really appreciate Matt Gates's perspective, pushing through piecemealing all of this stuff, because I think the American people can more easily understand what the budget is if we talk about it separately. Now we're having a conversation about $14.3 billion going to Israel, where that money is coming from. That's not something that happens every budget cycle. When everything gets lumped together uh, and passed through Congress, you don't have the same kind of focus on issues like we do here. And I think it's interesting also now that we get to see who is in support of funding for Israel, who is in support of funding for Ukraine, which I think is an important distinction right now, because a lot of the folks that supported, you know, cuts to the Ukraine funding. They said, why are we funding this forever war? Uh, we're never going to be able to get out of it. We shouldn't be funding a war in another country. We should focus on things back home. They have to explain why that's not the case for Israel. And I think that puts a lot of members of Congress in a tough position. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's a debate that is really spilling out into the open in the Republican Party, even on the presidential stage, because you have Vivek Ramaswamy, who has been critical of aid to Israel even before the mm -hmm. October 7th attack from Hamas. And he has been pretty roundly criticized by the rest of the field for that. And Nikki Haley has been rising in the polls by taking a more neoconservative approach in terms of how much involvement involvement she wants the U.S. to have militarily abroad and particularly in the Middle East. And it, for me, it's kind of disheartening because I felt like when Trump won in 2016 that the Republican Party was clearly more interested in taking a uh, more isolationist approach to foreign policy. They weren't interested in funding forever wars. They weren't interested in putting troops on the ground in, in conflicts that the U.S. frankly has nothing to do with. Um, and then to see that Nikki Haley is performing well because foreign policy is now top of mind for Americans, it's like, whoa, where did this come from? Are, is there still a neoconservative wing of the Republican Party that exercises a, a good amount of power? And it seems like there is. And that's really unfortunate. Um, so I agree 100 percent to see Speaker Johnson yeah. pull these two packages apart is really important for getting people on the record to see where they stand on these issues. And mm -hmm. then on the piecemeal line item spending package, as well. One of the other reasons why these massive boondoggle spending bills are such a problem is that members of Congress use it as their personal piggy bank because they get so big and there's always things in there that people don't want to vote for, but they feel obligated because it's all lumped into this one package. In return, they ask for kickbacks to their district or they ask for mm -hmm. special funding for projects that they probably make money off of because they have investments in these businesses. And it just turns into this pork barrel nonsense where all of these members are getting their cut of the pie while the American people suffer. Yeah, I think I'm disappointed because I would imagine 
our progressive members of Congress, Bernie Sanders, AOC and the likes, to look at these bills and say, okay, like, I'll vote for this, but you have to give us a little bit of this here. And now we're really seeing Bernie Sanders fully supports aid to Ukraine. He went from being someone who's extremely anti-interventionist to someone saying the U.S. needs to be involved in this war that I don't think we have any business being involved in. Uh, and, and now with Israel, he was someone who was always very critical of the United States relationship with Israel, very critical of the Netanyahu government. And now to see him kind of flip on this is, is shocking. And he can kind of hide behind, well, you know, this isn't what the leadership wants to do. Chuck Schumer is already saying this bill is out. We have to have funding, you know, for Israel without cutting the IRS uh, funding, which apparently, according to certain estimates, is going to cost them more than they'll cut. And I think it's good that the IRS is focusing on getting some of the, the money that's owed from the wealthiest members of our society. And I think there's been a lot of fear-mongering that it's going to affect working and middle-class families more. I think it's good we're getting that money from the wealthiest people in our society. But I don't think it's good that now we're like, okay, we have to find this money somewhere else. It should just be like, guess what? It seems like we can't afford to give this money away. And Senator Sanders and the progressives, I would expect to be the ones that were having that fight behind the scenes. But now we get to see in broad daylight that they probably were never having that fight. They were probably good with this funding all along. Yeah, and, and I'm interested to see what happens more generally with the Democratic Party on this issue, because you did have 12 Democrats who voted in the House to move this Israel package through over yeah. to the Senate. And then Joe Biden kind of finds himself in a difficult place, too, because he's been hemorrhaging support from the progressive base of the party, which is generally pro-Palestine, and he's been very aggressively pro-Israel. And at the same time, though, it's like trying to pay lip service to the pro-Palestinian contingent of the party. And so I'm not sure how he's able to really thread that needle. Yeah, I think it's, it's crazy that you have coming from the White House uh, the discussion about the $14 billion package, that you have Kamala Harris running game with the press, uh, the discussion that it's it's politicized, uh, the discussion that it wasn't enough money, that's insane. Right. Uh, in total, since the founding of Israel, the United States government has given them $158 billion to give them $14 billion in a year to strengthen an Iron Dome that they already have and is functioning and clearly dysfunctioned on the day of October 7th, whether deliberately or not, and then to give them an iron beam as well. It's like if the United States seriously wanted peace in the region, if they really wanted a two-state solution, like many of them say, I think a lot of people recognize that a two-state solution is pretty outdated in the region, but for them to invest that much money uh, in the Israeli military, that's committed so many atrocities. You have so many protesters calling for a ceasefire, and you have people saying that this isn't enough money. That is insane to me when they're trying to find the dollars, and, and the first thing that will go is money to young mothers and children if we face a government shutdown. Over what? Over giving more money to a state that's committing war crimes? It just doesn't sit right with me. I think it's way too much money. And in general, what I've always said in regards to Israel is our allyship doesn't mean that we should be sort of single-handedly financing their existence. Um, and the U.S. has been doing that for a long time. And we have enough issues here at home domestically with our homeless crisis, rising crime in cities, the border crisis. To view this as our priority right now, I think, is really offensive to the very many Americans who are struggling. And this should not be the priority for what we're spending our taxpayer money on. All right, we're gonna have to leave it there. 
and we'll be back with more Rising after this. Israel will not agree to any kind of pause in its war against Hamas until that pause includes the release of hostages, sources familiar with Antony Blinken's talks in Israel told CNN just this morning. Secretary of State Blinken touched down in Tel Aviv yesterday, where he met with President Herzog and Bibi Netanyahu to advocate for brief pauses in Israel's offensive for the passing of humanitarian aid and the release of hostages. The visit, of course, was also a show of U.S. support for Israel's continuing retaliation to Hamas's attacks on October 7th. Here's Blinken's speech from this morning. We believe that each of these efforts would be facilitated by humanitarian pauses, by arrangements on the ground that increase security for civilians and permit the more effective and sustained delivery of humanitarian assistance. Uh, that was an important area of discussion today with uh, Israeli leaders. How, when, and where uh, these can be implemented, what work needs to happen, and what understandings must be reached. Now, we recognize this would take time to prepare and coordinate as well with international partners. A number of legitimate questions were raised uh, in our discussions today, including how to use any period of pause to maximize the flow of humanitarian assistance, how to connect a pause to the release of hostages, how to ensure that Hamas doesn't use these pauses or arrangements to its own advantage. These are issues that we need to tackle urgently, and we believe they can be solved. Meanwhile, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, broke his silence on the war in Gaza during a televised address this morning in Lebanon. He blamed the West, saying, quote, the United States is controlling the war in Gaza, and it is the United States that must pay the price for the crimes perpetrated by the Israelis in Gaza and by the Americans in Iraq and elsewhere. Israeli troops, meanwhile, continue their march deeper into Palestine, successfully surrounding Gaza City yesterday, per the Palestinian Health Ministry. The number of Gazans killed in the past three weeks of fighting now nears 10,000. Joining us now to discuss these latest developments is Jonathan Spire, author, Middle East analyst, and director of research at Middle East Forum. Jonathan, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So you're based in Jerusalem. Can you give us a sort of lay of the land of what things are like right now? Um, I talked to some sources the other day who said that at this point, it seems most of the concern in terms of safety for the Israelis comes from potential rocket attacks. Uh, but I'd love for you to give us an update on the on the ground situation. Yes, I think with regard to the whole country, except for the areas immediately on the northern border and immediately uh, around the Gaza Strip, yeah, the main security concern at the present time uh, is the possibility of rocket attacks, missile attacks coming out of Gaza uh, towards Israeli urban centers. So the urban centers of central Israel, that's to say Jerusalem uh, and Tel Aviv, of course, most significantly, have been, have been subject to sirens, to warnings and so on. But having said that, I would say that, you know, four weeks into this now, uh, in a familiar way, there is a kind of routine of war uh, settling into the country now. Israelis are, are familiar with uh, periods of conflict, although this is certainly a very, very intense one. But there is then a certain, you know, life has to be lived. And so a certain type of normality after the initial deep shock, I think, which came to the country after October 7th is now starting to settle in. Shops are opening again. Businesses are opening again. People are out on the streets again. And there is that sense, I think, of a certain normality returning. 
So we have Anthony Blinken saying that now he would support a humanitarian pause, a ceasefire so that aid can get into to Gaza. But we had the United States also use their veto power in the Security Council, uh, the, the lone vote vetoing a humanitarian pause in Gaza. Now, they say that they would like for the aid to come in. We've had trucks come in. They were used to getting mm -hmm. 500 trucks a day about in Gaza. Do you think that uh, this could be a strategy by the Israelis and the United States working with them to give a limited amount of aid into Gaza to cause some internal strife to, you know, cause people to fight over the limited resources that they have in the Gaza Strip? It's an interesting question. I, I think what it's important to understand right now is that Israel regards itself as at war with Hamas-controlled Gaza, two entities at war with one another. It is not and has not generally in history been a norm or an expectation that when one country is at war with another, that country is nevertheless responsible for making sure that the civilians or indeed anybody within the, the enemy country is fed and watered and so on. That's not a norm. And I think that's not a norm that Israel wishes to accept. It's particularly, I think, reluctant to accept it when we take into account the fact that Hamas has been ruling Gaza, of course, since 2007 has received an enormous amount of international aid, and as it is now clear, has concentrated on building an enormous tunnel network in order to make war against Israel. An interview on uh, October uh, 27th, I think it was, of Hamas leader Musa Abu Marzouk with Russia today, uh, in that interview, uh, Abu Marzouk said that only the Hamas people are allowed into the tunnels. The job of looking after the civilians is for the UN and what he called the occupation, by which he meant Israel. You know, that's a kind of division of functions which Hamas is apparently happy with. Uh, Israel is not. Israel does not regard itself as primarily responsible for uh, for uh, the, the situation within Gaza. Israel is at war with Gaza. It's in Gaza to destroy Hamas governance in that uh, area. And that, I think, is front and center of Israel's concerns at the present time. The leader of Hamas invoked the United States in his criticism of what Israel has been doing. And I just wonder your opinion on that strategy, because there is a, a very robust debate in the United States right now of both how much aid should be given to Israel and whether the United States should get involved militarily. Is it wise for the leader of Hamas to try to intentionally bring the U.S. into this conflict and risk bringing the weight of the U.S. military down on him? Um, I think you're referring actually to the leader of Hezbollah, to Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah, yes, leader apologies. of Hezbollah. Sure, no, it's fine. Yes, so uh, with regard to his speech that he just gave today, earlier today in uh, in Beirut, yes, he did seek, of course, to apportion uh, the centre of the blame to the United States. I think there's an element, of course, of uh, rhetoric which we should always be aware of with Nasrallah's uh, sometimes quite long and uh, speeches. Uh, and we need to look for the for the the key few sentences where the which show us the real content. And my own sense, at least with regard to that speech, is that yes, he did talk about the United States. He described Israel as the tool of the United States and so on. But these are this is Nasrallah uh, using, I think, rhetoric. The the things that really mattered were, I think, two things. One was that he uh, expressed that his organization and Iran were not aware of the uh, uh, plans for the carrying out of the October. Uh, seventh uh, attack or atrocity carried out uh, by Hamas. And he said it was, you know, a, a Palestinian achievement as he regards it. That's very important, I think, because what I think he was actually saying with that, and the second thing was he said, people say Hezbollah should enter the war. 
But actually, we've been in the war since October 8th, referring to the limited attacks that they're carrying out. Both those two statements, I think, indicated that despite the rhetoric, actually what Nasrallah was saying in Beirut was uh, a message to Hamas saying, listen, guys, you're actually probably on your own in this. We precisely don't want to bring down the uh, possible uh, responses of either the United States military in the shape of the USS Gerald Ford right now in the Mediterranean, or indeed the Israeli military, which has made very clear that if Hezbollah does enter the war, there will be a very, very serious response from Israel's part. And I think Nasrallah's speech, if you condense it down from the rhetoric to the meaning, what he was actually saying could have been said in just a few words. He was saying to Hamas, listen guys, you're probably on your own in this. Jonathan Spire, thank you so much for joining us and breaking this down today. Thanks very much. Former President Donald Trump's son, Eric Trump, took a stumble up on the stand during the civil fraud trial brought against the family after claiming he never worked on the Trump Organization's statement of financial condition and was not aware of it until the bank fraud trial came to fruition. Eric contradicted himself and admitted he was aware of them dating as far back as 2013, the New Republic writes. Eric's big brother, Don Jr., also took the stand in New York this week and testified, saying that he has done anything and everything for the Trump Organization, but claimed to know nothing about generally accepted accounting principles. He says he leaves that to his CPAs. Trump Jr. and his younger brother, Eric Trump, are both named as defendants in the case. Don Jr. introduced himself as a, quote, real estate broker and said he had forgotten much of what he once knew about New York's rent stabilization laws. He also said he could not recall whether his father was still a trustee in the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust, which was used to hold Donald Trump's assets after he became president in 2017. Don Jr. even claimed not to know how to pronounce the word revocable. Yeah, this is ridiculous. I'm not buying it. It is very funny, but I'm not buying it. I think they were very aware of the financial condition. I understand that they have a lot of people helping them with the family's finances, right, accountants and things of the like. But I am very confident that they were aware of the family's financial condition. I understand Trump is saying, you know, leave my children alone. Uh, he should have thought about that before bringing his children into business with him. If they didn't want to be involved, they could have, you know, gardened back at the estate or something, rather than being so involved in his presidency and the family's businesses. Yeah, I mean, he can't say, leave my kids alone, when they quite literally are in leadership positions in the Trump organization. Um, so. I don't get that argument at all. Mm -hmm. What I will say about this fraud case that I find really interesting is it seems like, in general, it's kind of a circus on both sides. Yeah. So you have these guys testifying that they basically don't know anything that they were working on while with the Trump Organization, which I'm sure is some kind of legal strategy. And then on the judge's side, you have him accusing one of the Trump lawyers of being a misogynist because he like insulted a law clerk or something. And then you have him, even prior to the trial, agreeing that Mar-a-Lago was only worth $18 million, which like any rational person would say is totally insane, considering it's a literal oceanfront property in one of the most desirable parts of Florida. Um, so this whole case to me is, is such a distraction. It's silly. I don't even know why the charges were brought in the first place. I mean, we're talking about real estate. 
think everybody knows that it is incredibly common for people at this high of a level uh, to always exaggerate a little bit what their property values are. And I think what happened is that the appraiser in the case, which the judge agreed with, deliberately lowballed all of the true valuations to make what Trump did seem way worse than normal. For a while, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of other cases where you had very powerful people involved in this kind of corruption and valuation of property. You had United Fruit Company operating in Guatemala. A lot of, you know, U.S.-based investors, CEOs, leaders of that organization, uh, their former corporate lawyers ended up heading the State Department, the Secretary of State, and then the head of the CIA. But they had a very friendly president to United Fruit Company for quite some time there in Guatemala. And they reduced the value of all of their property so that they could skirt taxes. Right. And then when a you know leftist government got in charge, they were like, hey, you can't do this anymore. And actually, if any of this arable land where we can farm you know fruit on is not used, the state has the right to buy it back at the value of its last valuation. And they bought it all back very cheap. <laughs> United Fruit Company was very upset. So basically for fraud, when I think about this uh, kind of fraud, I think, yeah, they, they were probably, when I first heard of this case, I'm like, they're devaluing the property so that they can skirt taxes. But it's hilarious to me that the conversations behind the scenes from, from Cohen's testimony is that Trump wanted to be higher on the Forbes list. And so he would say, you know what, it needs to be higher. I think it's worth, you know, six billion, maybe eight billion now with everything going on so that he could just be higher on the Forbes list, which is just such a silly reason to commit fraud. Uh, and that reasoning from Cohen made me realize that uh, what's at stake? What's the outcome of this? Like, what is justice for the American people as an outcome of this trial? And I don't know, Forbes changes what their list was. Like, <laughs> right. like I, I just haven't been able to find any other real consequences that harm other people from this fraud case. Yeah, I mean, I think the other element of it was that they claimed he was uh, valuating the properties higher so he could get bigger loans um, uh, because yes, he was able course. to use the property okay. as leverage. Um, the other element of it, besides the Mar-a-Lago property, is his penthouse in New York City. Mm -hmm. And there was a debate over the square footage of the apartment. And so this seemed like a very cut and dry example of fraud because they, Trump's legal team had basically tacked on like an extra, I don't know, 5,000 square feet to what the penthouse footprint actually was. Um, and their argument was that when you're going through this process in court, there's not really, or not in court, but when you're valuating a property that's a condominium, there's not really a cut and dry way to add in the value of shared amenities. So like a pool or a common area or a game room or what have you. And so they tried to add on the appropriate square footage that would increase the value to what they thought those common areas were worth. Because if you think about it, if you own a condo and you live in a just standard building um, and you have your condo and that's it, and then if you buy a condo in a building that's like a luxury apartment that has this an indoor heated pool and an outdoor pool and a sauna and all of these other common amenities, the condo that's in the luxury building is obviously going to be worth more money. And so I think what they were trying to do was trying to find a way for that to be valued properly given the common areas and the amenities. And the only way to do that in the valuation process was to tack on square footage that didn't exist. Yeah, I think that... This should be illegal. Just 
leveraging your your loans against your assets. I mean, this is what makes banks very vulnerable. I think about Elon Musk leveraging uh, his loan to purchase Twitter against Tesla stock. I think the valuation of Tesla that was done by the bank, like, I just want to know what was going through their minds. Like, if Tesla goes under, which is possible based on the company's finances, what would you do in that scenario? Would you sell it for parts? As a bank, what's the strategy there? They have made it very easy for a lot of wealthy people to gain access to capital to make more money, leveraging a lot of their loans against their assets. I think it's it's a fascinating problem that we, I think, need more financial protections around. Um, when I think about the Trump family and how they're doing business all as a family and being deposed, of course they should be deposed. But also I want the loan officer <laughs> that did the valuation as well sure. to be deposed. Like, if that's really what we care about, let's get into the, the weeds of it. Let's uncover some things. And if I'm Elizabeth Warren and I'm responsible for making some financial regulations, I would have my eyes all over this, thinking of, okay, if this is such a problem, what legislation can we draft? I agree that oftentimes we have these kinds of trials, Hunter Biden is one of them, where it feels very political. It feels like they want to take down Hunter Biden because you have these investigations, you have these trials, without the legislation to prevent people in power from doing it again. It just feels very dishonest when you have one but not the other and people cheerleading for these trials in Congress when they're in the position from preventing something like this from happening again. Yeah, that's a good point. So often the Justice Department or even just the legal system in general is leveraged against political opponents. And whether or not you support that happening is dependent on whether or not you support the individual or their political party. And that's why these various indictments against Trump are so troubling to me. But this one in particular is, is I think, one of the worst, besides January 6th. But this one is is— so troubling, I think, because, I mean, we've alluded to it throughout this entire conversation, which is that property valuations and company valuations are incredibly subjective. They change on an almost daily basis based on the conditions of the economy, based on the potential demand for some of these things. I mean, even if you just look at stock prices like Tesla, I mean, two mm -hmm. years ago, it was at $300 a share. Now it's at like 210 mm -hmm. um, and has dropped even down to 150, I think, in, in recent months. So the idea that there's uh, some like magical number that is the right number of what Mar-a-Lago was worth, for example, is kind of silly. And to be having this big show trial where the judge is throwing out accusations of misogyny and instituting gag orders and fining Trump because he's talking about the ridiculousness of the case, it's, it's all, I think, such a colossal waste of time. Yeah, I, I think the deposition videos are very funny, and for that, to me, it's all <laughs> worth it. <laughs> We're going to have to leave this one here. We've got more rising right after this. Former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard lobbed a proverbial grenade on her ex-colleagues on Capitol Hill, Vice President Kamala Harris, and others for their response to the Israel-Hamas war, some of them siding with Palestinians. Here she is Tuesday night with Fox News' Laura Ingram. Let's watch. I don't know if Kamala knows what she's up to, uh, but the reality here is when you look at things like uh, what Representative Cory Bush is saying, what the squad is saying, what so many of these other people are saying who are accusing Israel of committing a genocide, it, it is the height of hypocrisy because 
their apologists and supporters of these Islamist Hamas terrorists who are calling for a genocide, the extermination of all Jews, not just in Israel, but around the world. And we're seeing this being carried out by these violent mobs and threats and other things that are happening against Jewish people literally uh, around the world. Tulsi asserted their positions are contrary to the values and foundational principles of the United States. But her attacks may be backfiring, angering her cheerleaders. Journalist Danny Haifong posted on X, quote, at times beginning in 2015 to 16, I defended Tulsi Gabbard for taking, albeit selectively, an anti-interventionist stand on Syria and other wars. I was wrong. Gabbard is a monstrous opportunist and hypocrite. History won't remember her fondly. Also on X, comedian Lee Camp wrote, quote, Tulsi Gabbard fooled many people into thinking she was anti-war when, in fact, she supports most wars that don't harm U.S. troops. She doesn't care about humanity. She doesn't care about innocent children. It's honestly pathetic. Hashtag free Palestine. Tulsi, now an independent, told Sean Hannity the Democratic elites and their stance on the current war in the Middle East is an example of what drove her from the Democratic Party. Let's watch. This is one of the main reasons, Sean, that I left the Democrat Party. It is clear, and it has been for some time, that they don't care about the safety, security, or freedom of the American people, and they have become apologists for these Islamist jihadists. They instead, they leave our borders wide open, which we know are being exploited by these Islamist terrorists, and they redirect our security infrastructure, our assets, our intel assets, not towards focusing on these terror threats that are coming through our borders and elsewhere. They're focusing them on fellow Americans. They're focusing them on people who they have deemed as domestic terrorism threats or, or extremists, also known as people who are supporters of President Donald Trump or conservatives. I think it's really dangerous to have Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, it's, it's very clear to me that Tulsi just wants attention again, and she got bored, and so now she's saying extreme things. <laughs> the people that are calling for a ceasefire that don't want to see 10,000 Palestinians die are, are not people who are supporting Hamas by saying that. You're not being anti-Semitic. You're not saying you love Hamas and what they stand for and what they've done. If you just say you don't want more Palestinians to die and to, to frame the situation in this way and make the only viable position one where you support Israel's merciless killing of Palestinians, that is dangerous. That is what breeds the terrorism that she is warning the American people of. I think we're all very aware that we're not particularly popular. She was an anti-interventionist for so long. We are aware that we have sowed enemies uh, through our conflicts all, all around the world. And she's right that we should be afraid of, of terrorism, of course. But let's be really real about what causes it. Are you going to make excuses for Israel which is, is essentially promising to sow more anti-American sentiments in the Middle East. Like, why are you saying this? It doesn't make any sense. If you are someone who does not want terrorism, if you are someone who is anti-interventionist, you cannot possibly be on the side of Israel, which is why I'm so firm in my belief that she is doing this for attention and saying extreme things because she's making money off of it, because it gives her attention. I'm sick of it from Tulsi Gabbard, to be honest. Yeah, I, I obviously can't speak to her motives, but I do find that her stance is a bit hypocritical. I mean, I, we've talked about this before in terms of the populist right and left generally having a good amount of overlap on anti-interventionist stances. Mm -hmm. And especially on the right, this is a growing sentiment over the years where we have bucked the idea of being involved in both Syria and Afghanistan. I think um, most of the anti-interventionist right 
when they criticized Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, some of them kind of lost the thread a little bit and meant that that, that we shouldn't have left at all. Mm. And really, the take that I always had was he was right to leave. He did it in the wrong way. Mm. And now we see Tulsi Gabbard and other individuals who are ostensibly part of the right at this point. I mean, I guess she considers herself an independent or a centrist um, or a former leftist, I guess you could say. But they, um, they, they have completely flipped the script on Israel. Mm -hmm. um, they have problems with funding of Ukraine. They have problems with intervention in Syria and Afghanistan. And yet, when it comes to Israel, all of that goes out of the window for whatever reason. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a tweet from Vivek Ramaswamy that I thought was really important to understanding um, the anti-intervention stance on this, which he says, it's sheer lunacy that we gave more than $600 million in aid last year to Lebanon, which is basically controlled by Hezbollah, while expanding aid to Israel to fight its adversaries like Hezbollah. There's a better way to do the arithmetic the foreign aid racket needs to end. And we are constantly funding contradictory sides of conflicts um, to the point where you're just, I, I think, as you said, ensuring that there's going to be more war, ensuring that people are going to be at each other's throats because you are quite literally paying the armies on both sides to exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty mind-blowing. And, like, my whole stance on this thing is um, the Israel-Palestine conflict is not my issue. It's not something that I follow incredibly closely. It's not something that is top of mind for me. I'm much more domestically focused. Um, and my general stance is that loss of life is bad on both sides. What Hamas did on October 7th was despicable. The fact that Israel's bombs are hitting the very hostages that they are trying to save is obviously ludicrous. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the ceasefire, there should be some kind of window in which Israel can get aid into Gaza, if that's what they actually want to do, um, which is mm -hmm. up for debate, but not long enough that Hamas is able to sit there and stockpile weapons and plan a, another counterattack. And in terms of U.S. involvement, all of that is is like a, a separate position. Like I, I don't I don't think that it's that difficult for people to be able to acknowledge the human element of this, but also say it's not our fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about Stephen Kinzer, who's a writer. He's an anti-interventionist. He was a foreign correspondent for many years under the Reagan administration when the United States was involved in all kinds of conflicts abroad. He really saw the beast at work at the place it was working and became incredibly critical of it. And uh, the first time I, I met Tulsi Gabbard was actually at a lunch with Stephen Kinzer. And I remember thinking, you know, she's very calculated. She thinks very carefully about what she says and why she says it. And I, I just can't get behind what she's saying now, knowing that's how she is. Um, but Stephen Kinzer, when he talks about the United States, he says, you know, we're, we're isolationists. We say, you know, we need to look inward and, and focus on American greatness. Simultaneously, we need to go abroad and liberate peoples and spread democracy. These are the stories we tell ourselves. We need to go secure markets abroad is really what that means to most of them. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and that these two, you know, imaginations exist simultaneously within America, sometimes within the same person at the very same time. And it definitely applies to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I mean, we just uh, spoke with Jonathan Spire, who described Russia's genocidal intentions in Ukraine. He says there's all of these sentiments that they want to eliminate Ukrainians. They want to make that land a part of Russia. They don't support the Ukrainian culture, the Ukrainian people, what have you. And that is a reason that many people make the case that the U.S. needs to be involved. It needs to protect Ukrainians. We have those same sentiments spoken by people living in Israel. We have Jimmy Carter and so many presidents saying that Hamas wants peace. They want to exist on the land that they've always existed on. They'll do a two-state solution. They just want to continue to exist. And you have Israel saying that they don't want Palestine to exist. They have leaked documents saying that their intent is to push all of the people from Gaza into Egypt to have an ethnocide. Israel has confirmed that that was a strategy that they received. They said, you know, we, we reviewed it and we decided not to go forward with it. Then why have they taken every possible step to move forward with that exact strategy? I mean, dropping 6,000 bombs, 4,000 tons of munition within the span of a few days, killing nearly 10,000 Palestinians now, it's very clear that they are moving forward with that plan. And the same people that say, we, we, we need to defend Ukraine. The United States can't be on the wrong side of this, even if it's a forever war, even if the lives lost are so extreme that we don't see an end to this. And it's still worth it. We should still do it. It doesn't make sense to me. The same people that say that, that are defending our position in Israel, supporting someone who's doing essentially what's been described as what Russia is doing. Yeah, I think one of my big problems with all of the conversation around this conflict is that nobody even agrees on what the outcome or what a good outcome would be if we were to get involved in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And even on the question of a two-state solution and, and who actually wants that, which, frankly, I don't think either side really does. But when it comes to that, I mean, even on on which territories would be given to each side or what a two-state solution actually means, like, people don't even agree on that. And so for the U.S. to want to get involved before articulating a common vision of what peace in that region actually looks like is very foolhardy. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to have to leave that one there. We've got more rising right after this. New polling from the Arab American Institute out Tuesday shows a historic drop in Arab American support for Joe Biden. While he enjoyed the support of 59% of the Arab vote in 2020, only 17% of Arab Americans say they'll support Biden in 2024, following his unequivocal support for Israeli strikes on Gaza that have now killed more than 8,000 Palestinian civilians. Although Arab American support had dropped to 35% before October 7th, and now it's halved since then. The poll was conducted by John Zogby Strategies of 500 Arab Americans, with some answering online only. The poll has a margin of error of 4.9 percentage points. And while Arab Americans make up a small fraction of the voting electorate, this is the first time since the start of the poll in 1997 that a majority of Arab Americans did not identify as Democrats. 40% said they would vote for Donald Trump, up five points from 2020. 25% of Arab Americans are still undecided, 13.7% say they'd support RFK Jr., while 3.8% say they'd support Cornell West. 68% say the U.S. should not send weapons and military aid to Israel and that the U.S. should call for a ceasefire. When asked about these polls, which could have an effect, a non-trivial one, on Biden's electoral chances in Michigan, where the Muslim vote was larger than his election margin, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre had this to say. 
Uh, Karina, I wanted to follow up on Anita's question about support among Arab and Muslim Americans. Uh, polls are showing today that it's dropping significantly for the president. Is that a concern, and how will you address that? So, uh, look, I, I'm not going to get into every poll, right? Um, uh, so going to be careful. I think in Anita's question, it, it was related also to um, an, um, kind of the electoral race that's coming up. Mine so. I know. I'm, you said you're gonna. You, you said that you were connecting your question to her. So I'm just making sure that I put that out there. I heard the question that you asked me. Um, look, of course, the president is always uh, concerned and wants to hear uh, how different communities feel about the work that he's doing. Uh, of course, of course, that's important to this president. Uh, and uh, you know, one of the reasons that he's going out there to go into rural America to hear directly uh, from uh, from Americans there. One of the reasons that he does these travel uh, because he wants people to hear uh, directly from him on, on the work that he's doing on behalf uh, behalf of Americans across the country. Uh, and so, always, always, uh, you know, paying attention, listening to uh, what uh, different communities are concerned about. Uh, obviously, that is important to this president. I'm just not going to go into um, every poll from here, uh, but I get the question. So I remember when Biden was first inaugurated or sworn into office uh, in 2021 in January, there was some speculation that his tone towards Netanyahu could change, given the way Netanyahu decided he wanted to govern the reforms he wanted to make, the changes to the Israeli constitution and the dominance of the judicial system, which he saw as a problem, had a lot of pushback from within Israel. Blinken had to have meetings with Netanyahu about what democracy really means, which I think tells you exactly what is going on in Israel. One of our allies has decided they're going to take steps away from having a democratic state. This is how it goes down. And initially, people thought that there would be a tone change from Biden's typical, you know, Bibi and I are still friends that he was saying in 2014. And they didn't get that. He was extremely pro-Israel. And so you have Biden getting 59 percent of the Arab American vote in 2020, delivering Michigan for him. And I think it dropped to 35 percent after they realized they were just getting more of the same Israel policy from him. As many Palestinians were being killed, he had called for a ceasefire in Gaza when the conflict escalated, but uh, it came all too late. It's very obvious he's still extremely pro-Israel, and of course you're going to lose more votes. You're already at 35 percent in the Arab American community, and then October 7th, of course, it drops to 17 percent. I think it's only going to continue to decline, and it sounds like Corinne Jean-Pierre unintentionally is giving away the electoral strategy. She's like, well, I can't comment on elections or things of that nature. You know, it goes against, you know, my constraints of my job. But she says Biden's going to go into rural areas across America and talk about what he's doing. So it sounds like she's saying we are going to try and replace the Arab American vote with the vote of rural white voters that we can fearmonger about the terrorism that's happening in the Middle East, people that they prey on who might not understand the conflict. It's dishonest to take that approach, but she's being very honest in revealing the electoral strategy, apparently, of the Biden administration. I wonder if, when she said rural Americans, though, if she was talking explicitly about their messaging on the Israel-Palestine conflict or more generally Biden's sort of posture as, like, the working-class president, which is mm -hmm. obvious BS based on everything he's done since being in office. And particularly, I, 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 if that is their strategy, that they want mm -hmm. to fearmonger about terrorism, like, that— I don't think that's going to work because, right. well, one, these people are way smarter than any politician gives them credit for. And two, one of the reasons that Trump was able to break the blue wall in 2016 was not just because of 
promising to reshore manufacturing, but also because it is the working class whose sons and daughters when they join the military, are the ones who are shipped off to fight these conflicts. Mm -hmm. So if Biden is going in telling them about how they have to go off to make the world a safer place for America, I don't see them buying that at this point, especially when the military is having a massive recruiting crisis and has shifted toward politics and away from combat readiness in so many ways. Um, I think that Biden finds himself waffling on this Israel-Palestine issue in general because he wants to have it both ways. He wants to be the pro-Israel president, but he doesn't want to lose the pro-Palestinian base. And we saw this when Karine Jean-Pierre was asked last week a question about anti-Semitism and the reported rise of it, in, uh, particularly on college campuses and in cities after the October 7th Hamas attack. And her immediate response was to talk about the alleged anti-Muslim sentiment that's been going around. And then in this answer, she pivots to talking about rural voters. So every time that she's asked about anything related to Israel-Palestine, she doesn't have a clear message. She doesn't have a clear stance. That could be due to the fact that she's bad at her job, and previous reports from the media have indicated that she's apparently not in these high-level meetings where decisions are made in the administration, which is a huge problem for the press secretary, the most forward-facing spokesperson for the administration. Um, but it could also be that the administration itself doesn't have a clear strategy. Yeah, and I think the messaging from Corinne Jean-Pierre is a reason that they're losing a part of this vote. Think about being an Arab American. Maybe you're Palestinian. Maybe you have family in the region. And you see the Biden administration pretending like they don't know anything. When you have a spokesperson from the Department of Defense or what have you, they go on and they're questioned about the war crimes of Israel. You know, they're reporting 7,000 Palestinians are dead. They question whether or not the reporting from the Gazan Health Ministry is even valid when internally the State Department relies on the Gazan Health Ministry for the death toll. They say, we have to confer with Israel and see if that number is really correct. They dropped 6,000 bombs on Gaza at that point. This would average, you know, one point less than 1.5 people killed per bomb dropped. I mean, of course, it's very possible that 7,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, but they play dumb in moments like that. And then in other moments, when you have airstrikes on hospitals in Gaza, suddenly the administration is very aware of where Hamas is operating. They have the intelligence to know who decided to launch that airstrike. We think it came internally from Hamas. So you have the amount of scrutinous detail to know where Hamas is in Gaza, but you can't say whether or not Israel has possibly killed 7,000 Palestinians. It doesn't make any sense. And so I think the messaging is also a huge reason why Arab Americans are straying away from supporting this administration. Yeah, and I, I wonder, too, if the Biden administration is trying to be cautious in terms of how much vocal support they give to the pro-Palestinian contingent just because of how out of hand, I would say, some of the protests have gotten um, in terms of some fights have actually broken out, physical fights. I think everyone can agree that the actions of taking down posters of people who are being held hostage in Israel is completely uncalled for. There have been instances of anti-Semitism. And so I, I think perhaps they're trying to be cautious of separating themselves from that very I would say, more radical contingent of some of the protests, because those tend to get lumped in with the general pro-Palestinian movement right now because of how inflamed all of the tensions are. I would like her to just simply say, you know, we condemn any of the, the hateful acts, the protests, the violence. We are looking into whether or not Israel is committing war crimes. Right. You know, we watch the news as well. We see the reports of it. It's like, 
You could very easily say that. You could be an honest press secretary, but they've decided not to take that route. Well, nothing new there, unfortunately. We'll be back with more Rising after this. FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty on all seven criminal counts that he has against him and is facing a maximum prison sentence of 115 years. The 31-year-old crypto entrepreneur was convicted of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud against FTX customers and against hedge fund Alameda Research lenders, conspiracy to commit securities fraud and conspiracy to commit commodities fraud against FTX investors and conspiracy to commit money laundering, CNBC reports. SBF had pleaded not guilty to charges earlier this year, all of which were tied to FDX and Alameda. Damian Williams, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, said in a briefing, quote, Sam Bankman-Fried perpetrated one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. While the cryptocurrency industry might be new and the players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new, this kind of corruption is as old as time. I think... When he was out on bail, we could call him Sam Bankman-Fried, but now we pronounce it Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> That's a little dad joke for oh. all of our dads out there. But I think it's crazy. He said he didn't know that the hedge fund Almeida that he was chief executive of was giving $8 billion to FDX, the other company that he was the head of. Of course he knew. I mean, come on, obviously. FTX was in a great deal of trouble. They tried to have stable coins with one-to-one -one backing with the U.S. dollar, which is an insane thing for an entity that doesn't have the backing of the FDIC to do. But it's because, you know, people want to trade cryptocurrencies and have a really fast return. And so they have these stable coins because they want to have that quick return and be able to exchange it for U.S. dollars. That's what gives cryptocurrencies value is that you can exchange them for fiat currency. It's not this kind of independent currency. And so, of course, when you had the stable coin lose its one to one backing with a dollar, a bunch of people pulled its money out because of that injection of a ton of money into the stable coins. Uh, of course, you had people panic. Of course, you had people pulling their money out of it. He tried to save it with his own hedge fund. Right. Uh, the company was worth $32 billion in January of 2022. This is a masterclass in fraud. I mean, he got people to believe that cryptocurrencies were valuable. They had their own currencies, their own FTT, their personal tokens that they have at FTX. I mean, he really persuaded a lot of people to invest in cryptocurrency. And then it all fell apart, and we don't know where a lot of the money went. Yeah, and he was able to get a lot of celebrities on board with this. He had, uh, I believe it was Tom Brady and just a bunch of running ads for him about how great FTX was. Apparently, he tried to get Taylor Swift on board, and she nixed the idea, so mm -hmm. good on her for avoiding that absolute pitfall. Um, but there was a, a really big celebrity campaign to really make this seem like the hot new thing, to make it seem really cool. And clearly, none of them did their due diligence to make sure that this was a company that was actually solvent, a company that had a decent enough business plan such that if a run on money, if some kind of panic occurred, that it would be able to stay afloat, which obviously it couldn't. And then also, Sam Bankman-Fried has this political tie to uh, the U.S. government because he donated millions, if not billions of dollars to, or yes, millions of dollars to both Republicans and Democrats in Congress. He gave, I believe, $5 million to the Biden campaign. And quite a few of the people who receive money from him have not made any indication that they're going to return those donations, which were acquired fraudulently. Mm -hmm. um, that's money that belongs to the FTX customers and investors. And they didn't receive 
you know, a payback when the company went under. They didn't get their money back from Sam Bankman-Fried being convicted of fraud. He's going to spend a lot of time in prison, but that's only a small comfort if you lost a significant investment, perhaps everything, when you put your money into this company. And to see it go to political officials who are already mostly incredibly wealthy and become wealthy just by serving in Congress is an extra slap in the face. So I think every politician that received money from Sam Bankman-Fried should absolutely return those donations or maybe, at the very least, give them to charity. Mm -hmm. Do something with the money to show in good faith that you didn't—that you don't want to have your campaigns propped up by— one of the biggest fraudsters of the 21st century. Yeah, and and the fact that there was legislation introduced by Rashida Tlaib's office, it was written by legal scholar Rowan Gray, who's really good on the financial regulation stuff, and most members of Congress just ignored this. Like, it was a non-issue. What even is a stable coin? Who cares? But a lot of them were paid not to care by the crypto lobby, getting a lot of campaign donations from various cryptocurrency trading platforms and things of the like. So they were paid to basically not do their job of regulating this. Sam Bankman-Fried would probably still be leading FTX. They would probably still be in business uh, if they passed this regulation. It would give the kind of regulation necessary so that there was a security around trading stablecoins and exchanging cryptocurrencies for them, that really is what led to this demise, is them being greedy, them not be wanting to be regulated, and them paying to not be regulated. And it has a domino effect. There's a lot of discussion about the tech industry, especially in San Francisco right now, how there's not a lot of tech investment happening. What's fascinating is Bitcoin and a lot of cryptocurrency trading platforms paid people to have relations with banks so that they would invest a lot of their assets in cryptocurrencies, which is insane, but they did it. And a lot of these Silicon Valley banks, like SVB, they invested a lot in cryptocurrency. A lot of the banks, the small and regional banks that funded a lot of the tech ventures in San Francisco had their assets leveraged in cryptocurrency, and they're not doing so well right now, and that's really hurting tech investment. So this whole scheme has an enormous impact on our economy. If we're not innovating in the tech industry largely because of, of this scheme, that's a huge problem for the, the whole of the American economy, the world, if we're not investing in tech to the extent that we could be. And I think that's fascinating to really get into the domino effect of what SBF and people like him caused. I remember when FTX was first tanking, the media started running with all of these really glowing pieces about how SBF was like this wonderkind, and he had this mousy girlfriend who was supposedly <laughs> brilliant. And he tried to pin the whole thing on her in the <laughs> trial, by the way, which is uh, unfortunate for her. But um, he, there was a video that came out at the point that the media was running all this cover for him and talking about how, how great he was and how brilliant he was. And he was talking about his political persuasion. And he basically admitted on camera that he was playing a game, that he was giving all of this money to politicians, and Democrats in particular, because he believed that it would sway them against regulating the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe he addressed specifically the idea that he is woke. And he said something like, um, well, the woke thing is a convenient reason or excuse to basically line the pockets of politicians and get mm -hmm. them on my side. Um, I mean, if you like read between the lines, that was really what oh, he was yeah. saying.
Yeah, it's like that meme. Oh my God, he admitted. He said the He's, thing yes. that any lobbyists <laughs> won't say. Like you're paying for them to do a thing, but you're saying you're donating to them their campaign and you just right. support them and agree with their politics. And you know, this is how democracy works. If you have some money, you support a candidate, you can give it to them. No, obviously they're making deals and exchanging things for, uh, you know, political favors. So I think that's what was going on here. Yeah, and we also cannot forget about the epic courtroom sketches that came out of this because somehow Sam Bankman-Fried ended up looking like John Cusack in his courtroom <laughs> sketch or maybe like handsome Squidward. They created this jaw and, and chin line that does not exist in real life. So. I want John Cusack to now play him in the Netflix documentary. <laughs> We're all looking forward to that. More rising after this. Disinformation, weaponization. Those were just a few words Hunter Biden employed to describe an op-ed published in USA Today, lambasting conservative media and politicians for their persistence in coming after him. In the piece that published yesterday, Biden's second son tore into the political right for using his struggles with addiction and journey getting sober as a weapon against his dad, President Joe Biden. In his rare public comment, Hunter Biden wrote, quote, my struggles and my mistakes have been fodder for a vile and sustained disinformation campaign against him and an all-out annihilation of my reputation, unquote. The president's son maintains he is and will continue to take accountability for his past. He's facing federal gun charges for his gun possession, and his past foreign business deals are under scrutiny from the House of Representatives. So I think, you know, Hunter Biden, the big problem I have with what he wrote in this op-ed here, he talks about getting sober and how this is, you know, the main problem is that everyone's talking about my drug use. He said, the weaponization of my addiction by partisan and craven factions represents a real threat to those desperate to get sober, but are afraid of what may await them if they do. I don't think the average person who wishes to get clean from an addiction will look at the Hunter Biden case and the House Oversight Committee's actions and say, this could happen to me. Right. I'm sorry, that went a little too far. I get that he is going through it right now. And he admits, you know, I'm a very privileged guy. I get that I've done certain things. I, I don't like that he's trying to get sympathy from a community of addicts in this way, saying that this could happen to you. It can't. It probably won't unless you're the president's son. Most people aren't. Right, this is complete gaslighting of the American people. He is trying to shirk responsibility for his very real mistakes that might have been related to his drug addiction and that his decision-making faculties were inhibited, but that doesn't excuse him or absolve him of responsibility. The idea that the average drug addict, as you said, is collecting millions of dollars from a Ukrainian business uh, uh, energy company or sitting on the board of a Chinese energy company and potentially selling out the American people and using his father's name to get access and money is absurd. We don't know what crack might make you do, Amber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All and, of those and things. And the idea that his addiction, where he's addicted to crack and cocaine and all manner of other things, and blowing his money on like high level escorts and staying at these fancy hotels, the, the idea of that being the average addict's experience is, I think, a testament to his privilege and the fact that he doesn't truly understand it. Um, to try to create a community 
uh, with people who struggle with addiction to prescription painkillers or people who are dying from the fentanyl crisis, um, where drugs that would typically be considered relatively safe or laced with fentanyl and they accidentally overdose. I mean, to compare your plight to the plight of the working class who turns to addiction for as a salve to financial and physical health woes and mental health woes is frankly ridiculous and insulting. Um, I think this guy should be ashamed of himself. And it, the other thing is when you get sober, one of the things that you're supposed to do is take full accountability for the things that you did while you were under the influence and the harm that you may have caused. And the fact that he is using it as a shield, his addiction as a shield to shirk responsibility, tells me that clearly he is not taking this process seriously. Yeah, I think that's really fair to say. And an important point, because if he wanted to humanize himself and gain some sympathy, this op-ed wouldn't read the way it does. I take accountability for my actions and whatever. I grew up with a lot of privilege, blah, blah. Take accountability. Say what you've done. Say what you are remorseful from. Literally go through the process. He could have right. done that in this op-ed, but it just didn't read that way. It read like someone in a comms department drafted it for him, which I would say is likely the process that this piece went through before it got published. And Hunter Biden made some tweaks, added a little bit of his personal flavor, if that. And then it went out to, to the opinion section of USA Today. I just don't think this was the right approach from a communications perspective as well, because of course that's not going to come off as relatable. If he wanted to write an op-ed, he should have done so really honestly. I mean, people connect to human stories. He didn't do any of the storytelling. It felt just very plain and very processed. And I think if he really cared about everything that was going on in, in, in the news, he would do more appearances, like he would talk about it himself. He wouldn't publish, you know, these opinion pieces. I think if I was in that position and people were using my reputation to slander my father, who is president, I would want to take a more active role. And he comes up with a lot of excuses for why he doesn't. And moreover, I would be vehemently saying that my father had nothing to do with my business dealings, which he said before, but he doesn't make that the main thrust of this piece. He's not saying it really hurts me to see my father go through this. Um, what anyone would think if they were a, a son or a daughter in this situation, I just don't get that from him. And so it, it feels like more of the political class making excuses for their privileged children. Some of them coming from the comms department of the privileged children, maybe him directly. I just don't like it. It's this narcissistic idea that he is the true victim in this scenario mm -hmm. when he, as you said, is putting his father, um, now granted, I believe that Joe Biden obviously had a role in Hunter Biden's business dealings based on the testimony and evidence that we've seen so far. But if that were not the case and his father was being unfairly maligned, then you're right. He would be expressing more uh, more empathy and more taking more responsibility for the fact that his father is dragged into this. And instead, this entire op-ed reads as a woe is me salvo. Mm -hmm. And um, it's clear as well that he's not actually interested in taking accountability because of this plea deal that was worked out with his lawyers mm -hmm. and the DOJ that blew up famously in front of the judge. Because a part of that 
deal was that he would avoid prison time on the gun charges if he pled guilty to, or pleaded guilty to the tax charges and paid back the IRS the money that he owed, um, but also included in that deal, which the judge didn't even know about until it apparently came up in court, was mm -hmm. that there would be a clause granting him immunity for anything related to the facts of the case, which included essentially all of his business dealings. So if there were a case where there was fraud or bribery or any of these financial crimes, he wouldn't have been able to face accountability for those. Mm -hmm. So for him to sit here and say, I'm taking responsibility, as you get the sweetheart plea deal, you have IRS agents testifying to the fact that they were encouraged to not investigate to the point that they could get to President Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. um, everything about this reeks of a cover-up. So are you taking accountability, really, when you just plead out to community service or probation or whatever he ends up getting in this case? Um, it's, it's obviously a sham. Especially comparing it to what the average person would face if they were found in possession of the drugs that we know he's been taking. The thing about accountability, you're so right to call that out. I think about the, the gun possession charge that they tried to get him out of, that the judge was like, this is such a ridiculous thing to promise that we will not prosecute you from a crime unrelated to this one that you have likely committed mm -hmm. because you're entering into a plea. So you can't say I'm, I'm pleading guilty to a bunch of things, but I'm, you know, I'm an innocent guy. Don't arrest me for this other thing. Don't press charges for this other thing. I don't buy it. You tried to shirk accountability. And so we're really not exaggerating when we say this, this reads as a very dishonest, woe is me type of a thing. He doesn't address his business dealings in this, which have been the focus of a lot of public outcry. He makes it all about getting sober. And he's like, if you want to get sober, you can too. And we just didn't get any honesty in this. We're really not exaggerating at all. No. And, and meanwhile, he is also accused of running this uh, money laundering service through his very fantastic artwork that he apparently is getting millions of dollars per piece from, conveniently, people who have some stake in the Biden administration or uh, President Joe Biden's success. Um, so I, I didn't see anything about his new painting hobby in here and <laughs> why his paintings are suddenly fetching millions of dollars. But um, maybe we'll have a new op-ed soon enough where he uh, addresses some of these issues, but I highly doubt it. We'll be back with more Rising after this. More UFO secrets? According to investigative journalist Ross Coldhart, Three sources have told him that there was an undisclosed encounter over the Arctic Circle on February 1st, 2023, with NORAD organizing fighter jets being sent to take the object down, three days before the Chinese spy balloon was shot down in U.S. airspace. Let's watch. Three sources tell me there was an earlier publicly undisclosed incident over the Arctic Circle on the 1st of February three days before the Chinese balloon shoot-down. These defence and intelligence sources revealing to News Nation eight or nine UAPs were detected over the Arctic Circle and that fighter jets were sent up in what was an unsuccessful attempt to intercept them. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence Christopher Mellon has independently confirmed the same story. Fighter jets were deployed from NORAD to engage with those objects and that they were seen to manoeuvre away, apparently at high speed. 
Have you heard those allegations? I've heard it now from three different people. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. And uh, from an individual who uh, would have plausible reason to, to know. Um, but this really speaks to a much larger issue, which is the lack of information from the Air Force um, about UAP generally. Let's hear some more on this same incident. Did they find the, the object, the, the pieces of the object they shot down? No, ma'am, they did not. Uh, in fact, uh, it's a continuing mystery. Uh, six months on, the public's been told nothing. We've been told that they didn't find anything, even though the New York Times and other institutions were reporting at the time that the sea ice was frozen and that there were, it was quite clear there was very clear open conditions that day. The p conditions were perfect for recovery. And uh, moreover, it was reported in media that there was something anomalous about the Alaska object in particular. This is an ongoing mystery, Elizabeth. We just don't know. And I think mm. the public's got a right to know what happened. And the Pentagon has indicated it's soon about to start releasing some of the shoot-down vision. Nord has denied the incident, saying the jets were on a training operation. So I don't know what to make of this, right? It, it could be the spy balloon. If it was the spy balloon, why did they ignore it? If they were only going to shoot it down later, why would they let it fly over the United States before they shot it down? Seems like because it was anomalous, it wasn't the balloon. I don't know if I trust NORAD. If you have children at home and you're watching or listening, you know, pause here. But NORAD does this thing every Christmas where they're like, we have GPS on Santa Claus and we're tracking <laughs> Santa, Santa tracker, Claus yeah. and this is where he is. He's coming to your house. What a lie. <laughs> that was a lie. And you tricked me. And I'm upset about that, NORAD. I don't buy it. How can Santa be real but aliens aren't? Bad organization. Don't like them. <laughs> I think uh, the problem we have now is because the Department of Defense and other government intelligence sources have been found to be incredibly dishonest about UAPs in the past and have tried to discredit the sources who are talking about it, that no one is going to believe them now when there is a legitimate training exercise and that is a legitimate mm -hmm. excuse for what happened. So it very well could be that this was just a training exercise, as they say, but I and not inclined to believe them now at this point because they have lost so much trust from the American public, public because of the lies that they've told. So um, I don't know how much stock I put into this particular reporting. I'd be curious to hear the sources characterized more. Um, he said three people, three sources, um, but didn't go much beyond that in terms of telling us who they are and how they would have access to this information. So I would have liked to see a little bit more detail in that reporting um, on air that we heard before I make any judgments on the accuracy of the information. Um, but the fact that there were two journalists who independently confirmed this incident occurred was interesting to me. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. The protection of sources in the case of UAP reporting has become really fascinating because you have all these documentaries on the History Channel where they interview people who have been career folks working in the Defense Department or what have you that have all of these things to say. But I, what's so unique about the state we're in right now is you have people that seemingly are currently serving uh, in office. They're either you know in the State Department uh, and they're an employee of the State Department, they're in NORAD, and they're speaking to reporters, which I think is really interesting. But you have Tim Burchett, an elected official, going in a skiff and finding out basically nothing at all. 
It sounds to me like the, the if you call them whistleblowers or the sources for a lot of David Grush's reporting, I, I really believe them. You have independent reporters confirming with the sources as well and other sources the statements. And so now we're in a place where the public knows it's true and the Defense Department brings Burchett in a skiff essentially to waste everyone's time and get our hopes up. I think just having the incident undisclosed initially means that there was something going on. You're absolutely right. That sows mistrust. We know something was going on. Why didn't you tell us about it initially? Because it could have been a training exercise. And if it was a training exercise, just say it. Because it sounds like uh, the only reason someone would speak out about it is because it was unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and in terms of the protection of sources, it's also important to remember that these people have been subject to really quite harsh attacks on their character and questioning mm. even their sanity. Um, there was right. that article with leaks to The Intercept against David Grush, where he was basically accused of being mentally unstable, mentally unwell, of being an alcoholic, perhaps a domestic abuser, and used incidents from his past as a way to discredit him and what he's saying now about UFOs and UAPs. And that's the level that the government is willing to stoop to, to keep this information under wraps. And we know that David Grush, after he testified to Congress in their now infamous UFO hearing, he said that he would show information, um, because most of his sources are secondhand, I believe. He said that he would actually give the names of these people who were speaking to him about this phenomena to members of Congress who had the authorization, and also that he would show them in, in the SCIF um, mm -hmm. some of these materials. And then the SCIF that Tim Burchett went into as you said, didn't really garner much of anything. And apparently, um, the Congress people who are interested in following up on David Grush's claims don't have the appropriate clearance to actually access some of the information that he wants to provide to them. So they're stuck in this sort of holding pattern right now where they want more information, David Grush wants to provide it, and yet there's this um, security obstacle to being able to actually get it to them. And it's really a shame how I think the government does a lot of over-classification of materials that are of public interest intentionally so that people can't, not even just the American public, but the fact that a congressperson couldn't access it is telling. Insane. I think that, you know, the famous meme of the guy with the messed up hair and the History Channel logo, and it says, aliens. Heck yeah. My theory is that that was a psyop. It was a psyop by the people protecting the information about UAPs. Yeah. And they spread this everywhere so that you wouldn't watch the History Channel at 2 a.m. And now, if you believe those guys, uh, they were crazy, and you must be crazy for believing them because they have weird, funky hair and they talk about aliens. They had to discredit Grush because members of Congress wanted to have him on and talk to him. And he sounds very credible. Right. He doesn't seem like, ooh, aliens, conspiracy guy. No, he sounds credible, and members of Congress have taken interest in him, so they had to find something else. Obviously, there was a tip that he had this, you know, history of mental health problems, which were not severe. He was very clearly, you know, struggling with some depression, which is kind of common. Um, and so for the, the Intercept to take that and report on it, it just feels wrong. And I think about the tension between the bureaucracy and elected members of Congress. I always thought, or maybe I hoped, that the issue that would bring things to a head 
would be funding the federal government, that when Congress votes uh, on a budget and votes to spend dollars, that if there's a tension between them and the Federal Reserve wanting to maintain the debt ceiling and you have the Biden administration or whoever's president, maybe it's Trump, they say, no, you have to issue the dollars. Like, you respond to us, we're the elected leaders. Um, I thought that would be the main issue where we see the bureaucracy brushing up against our elected officials, but it very well could be UFOs, UAPs. Why is Burchett not be, being given the, the highest level of security clearance to receive all of the information and documents that the Pentagon has. Yeah, it's quite literally why we elect these people, um, is to be able to get access to this information and conduct investigations and hopefully give that information to the public. Um, and that's just not happening here. And the government has a history, too, of denying FOIA requests related to this. And I'm sensitive to the fact that in some of these incidents, the government does have an interest in protecting um, certain technologies. Um, they want to protect in the cases where perhaps foreign governments are involved. They don't want to give away the fact that maybe a foreign government has greater technology than the United States does. However, when you have independent journalists, like we had uh, Michael Schellenberger on this mm -hmm. program, talking about sources explaining that they had actually recovered UAP craft with potentially physical non-human remains inside, non-human pilots, we're at a point now where we have to err on the side of transparency um, because the people deserve to know how much of this is real, if any, and what the government intends to do in terms of a protection, potentially, of the American people, if necessary, from these, uh, these non-human uh, things, I guess you could say. Yeah, we have to err on the side of transparency. And the rest of this segment is redacted per request of the Pentagon. <laughs> Just kidding. More rising up to this. <laughs> is Russian President Vladimir Putin actually dead? Per a new op-ed piece in The Hill, reports of Putin's death might not be greatly exaggerated. Perf Sorry. Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University, Newark, Alexander Modell, has just more than a hunch, and he joins us now to break down his argument. Welcome. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. So we're um, at a place... The... Sorry, go ahead. I'll let you open us up. No, 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 no. Please, please. I'm curious. Uh, you talked about, you know, the realists making their analysis of the Russia-Ukraine situation. About 100,000 deaths on either side are being reported. A lot of folks are making this kind of utilitarian calculation. Is the United States funding Ukraine going to make the situation better or worse? Is the continuation of the fighting making the situation better or worse with the calculation being around human lives lost? Now, you said in your piece that you think that uh, the realists assessing this conflict are naive. You didn't just say that you disagree with them. Can you explain to our listeners why you believe they are naive? Well, they seem to think that Russia can be satisfied simply by Ukraine's making certain kinds of territorial concessions. So in other words, I mean, the bottom line is uh, Ukraine agrees to the fact that Russia will continue to occupy the territories it occupies in return. There's either a ceasefire or a peace of some kind and so on. Well, <laughs> would that that were only the case? But it's naive to believe, and hence the use of my, you know, my use of the word naive. It's naive to believe that Vladimir Putin 
or for that matter, the Russian elites in general, will simply stop, uh, sim you know, simply because Ukraine has agreed to a what seems to be a temporary loss of its territories. They will resume their assault, uh, just as they resumed the assault in 2022. Remember, the war against Ukraine began not in 2022, but in 2014, in the aftermath of the so-called Revolution of Dignity. It's then that Russia captured the Don half of the Donbass and all of the Crimea. Um, and then it resumed the war again, the fighting war in February 24th, 2022. So if Russia is given what it wants, which is essentially what the realists are arguing, give them these territories and then they'll stop, uh, it will not stop, it will simply continue. And sooner or later, as the Ukrainians fear, uh, their turn will come once again, but this time Russia will be stronger, its military will be stronger. And it's conceivable that Western determination to stop Russia and to help Ukraine will be weaker in the immediate future, or at least in the foreseeable future. So hence the charge of naivete. You can't deal with a dictator like Putin, or for that matter, with a dictator like Adolf Hitler, by assuming that they're nice, reasonable individuals who have limited goals. They're neither nice nor reasonable, and their goals are certainly not limited. In your op-ed, you write about this Russian telegram channel and a Russian political analyst, Valery Sol Solovy, who are circulating claims that Vladimir Putin might actually be dead. And you give basically two possibilities, which is that, yes, Vladimir Putin is actually dead and it's not as crazy as it seems, or that this is a potential strategy by the opposition party to sow discord and confusion. Which do you think is the more likely scenario? Well, I think the latter one is more likely. I mean, I, I wouldn't exclude or preclude the possibility that he's actually dead. Um, Solvay has been right in many of his predictions. He's also been wrong in many of his predictions. But this isn't a prediction. This is a supposed statement of fact. And what's striking about this is the detail to which they go, so that he apparently died at 10.42 p.m., there were a whole bunch of doctors, they were locked up, then eventually Putin's body supposedly has been supposedly deposited in the refrigerator in his bunker. Now, of course, if this is all just a, you know, fake news, that's what you would expect, detail. But if it's truthful, it's also what you would expect, detail. So it's conceivable that this actually happened. Um, Mr. Solovey continually says that uh, this is a, quote, phantasmagorical scenario, but then he always adds, but you know, this is Russia after all, so he's got a point. That said, personally, I'm somewhat skeptical. I'd say there's a one in five, one in ten chance that he's really dead, and that far more likely is that this is a somewhat elaborate attempt either by Solvay and his opposition friends or by Solvay and elements within the Russian elite to discredit Putin, to uh, sow confusion, to create the impression that he's not really in charge or that if he is, he's barely able to make decisions. Central to this claim, by the way, is that there is actually a double who's been taking Putin's place at a variety of public functions over the last few months. 
And the irony is, and this is of some significance, that several months ago when Solvay and General SVR were making claims about a Putin double, the vast majority of Russian commentators said, pshaw, it's not true, it's not possible. Now, I'd say there's pretty much unanimous agreement that Putin really does have a double. Now, of course, everybody could be wrong, but chances are they're not. So there seems to be a double, and this double seems to have played a significant role in representing Putin. And then when you add these two elements together, that Putin may indeed be dead, and at the same time that his double may be alive and well, it's not inconceivable, but again, unlikely, but not inconceivable that Soloveyev is right in saying that Putin is dead, his double has taken his place, and that sooner or later, however, the consensus regarding his double will collapse, and what we'll see is savage infighting within the Kremlin. All of that sounds more or less plausible, minus the possibility that Putin is indeed dead. Uh, but even if he's alive, the bottom line is that the elites are mobilizing, they're sharpening their lives, someone is clearly out to get Putin, and none of this bespeaks a stable Russian regime. That's absolutely fascinating as a foil to this conflict. I, you know, think about the people within Ukraine and the state of the country, how there have been so many people rising up in the ranks of office and then losing their positions. Zelensky spoke recently. Uh, we had reports of his staff talking about this corruption within Ukraine. I think about a heavily armed populace after this conflict. I'm wondering, what, what kind of a Ukraine are we defending here by continuing this war? You made a really nuanced argument in your piece that you don't believe NATO escalation was the main reason we had Putin invade Ukraine, that he decided to do so in 2021. And that also the argument for continuing the war isn't just that, you know, Russia is uniquely evil, Russia is always bad. It's that Russia wants to destroy the state of Ukraine and the people within it, many of them. Now, what do you make of the continuation of war? Does that promise to also do the same and, and destroy a bit of the, the the civilization living in Ukraine and deconstruct a lot of their, their government with the extent of corruption we've seen since the beginning of the conflict. Well, again, the, you know, the trope about Ukraine being this incredibly corrupt place, is, <laughs> it's somewhat of an exaggeration. It's not significantly more corrupt than Romania, Bulgaria. Uh, it's significantly less corrupt than Russia. Uh, less corrupt than Moldova, so it's pretty much on par with its neighbors. Um, Ukraine is fundamentally a democracy, and the remarkable thing, again, it's an imperfect democracy. It's, I mean, it's hardly, uh, you know, Norway or Sweden, but it is a democratic state. Uh, the people have rallied around the president, Mr. Zelensky, who's been doing a very good job over the last two years. Um, and despite the war, this is a significant part, despite the war and the destruction that it's caused, Ukraine has remained a democratic state with the free press, uh, right to assemble and everything else. I mean, so it's managed to hold on to its core values, which it says are European, um, despite the, you know, the conflict, the death and the destruction. Now, the other question uh, is also very important, and that is to say, wouldn't Ukraine be better off if the war were to end tomorrow? Well, of course, yes. <laughs> uh, 
it would be better off if the war ended tomorrow, but it all depends on the circumstances of the ending. If Putin remains in power, let's assume he is actually alive. If Putin remains in power, he will not abandon his uh, his ambition, his goal of destroying the Ukrainians. Um, it's not an exaggeration to say that Ukrainians are to Putin. They fulfill the same role for Putin as Jews did for Adolf Hitler. He detests them. Putin detests the Ukrainians. He doesn't understand why they exist. He doesn't understand why they want to exist. He believes that they shouldn't exist. And his minions, his propagandists, his sidekicks, they're extremely explicit in the fact that they want to destroy the Ukrainian nation. I've, I've heard many commentaries on Russian television where the propagandists who leave the talk shows say explicitly that if the Ukrainians don't get on board and give up their nationhood, their identity and their state, it is Russia's obligation to destroy them, as in kill them, even if it means millions. So the genocidal intent is fairly open. I mean, the Russians are not hiding it. So the choice before Ukraine is if you settle to if you settle on Russians terms, you die because essentially Russians terms involve the genocide of the Ukrainian nations or you fight in the hope and or expectation that you'll be able to, if not utterly defeat the Russian forces, at least keep them at bay. Ukraine has no other choice. It's either die or fight. And in as much as Ukraine is important, this is the point that some Americans don't fully understand. It's not just important because it's a nice place, it's a democracy, human rights are being violated. It's the only thing keeping this kind of imperial aggressive Russia from Europe and, the, and America's allies in Europe. It's the wall separating Russia, Putin's Russia, Putin's aggressive imperialist Russia from the rest of Europe. If Ukraine falls, the geopolitical consequences for Europe and hence for the United States will be immense and none of them will be positive. So stopping Putin in his tracks, preferably, and as soon as possible is not only good politics, it's not only good geopolitics for Ukraine, it's actually indispensable good and, and very good geopolitics for the West. Professor, thank you so much for joining today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Black Voters Matter Action Pack took a direct hit at Kentucky Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who's running to unseat the Democratic governor, Andy Bashir, in a political ad that struck a rather racist tone. The ad titled Skin Folk Ain't Kinfolk, a reference to the self-hating slave character in the movie Django Unchained, attacks Cameron for not taking harsher action against the police officers in the 2020 shooting and death of Breonna Taylor. We have a clip of it. Let's watch. What's up, Kentucky? It's election time, and all skin folks ain't kin folk. Over the past few years, we've taken to the streets to demand racial justice, to demand health care, and the right to make decisions about our bodies. And now Uncle Daniel Cameron is threatening to take us backwards. The same man who refused to seek justice for Breonna Taylor now wants to run our whole state. We can't let that happen. We won't let that happen. On November 7th, vote Andy Brashear for governor. 
Cameron denounced the ad, calling it hateful. Meanwhile, Bashir has yet to condemn it, saying that the creators, an African-American-led PAC, should, quote, comment for themselves. According to reporting in The Washington Examiner, Democratic mega-donor George Soros has been backing the left-wing organization, funneling $2 million to its coffer in recent years. I spoke with a Republican operative for my report in The Spectator, and he signaled optimism in the race, albeit cautiously, about Cameron's chances of winning the governorship. And actually, there's a new poll out today um, that has Daniel Cameron tied with Andy Bashir at 47 percent. This is an Emerson College poll, which is pretty stunning because just a few weeks ago, Andy Bashir was leading by double digits. Um, and pretty much conventional wisdom in all of the media believed that Bashir was going to run away with this race. But Daniel Cameron has really been rising in the past two weeks, I would say. And so to me, I think this ad was a desperate attempt of outside money and outside causes to try to influence this race. This is not a Kentucky-based PAC. Um, the vast majority of their donors, when I looked in the FEC, were from uh, Atlanta and uh, California, um, LA. They actually got $400 from Leonardo DiCaprio a couple of years ago, which is quite funny considering their invocation of Django Unchained in this, um, in this advertisement they ran against Daniel Cameron. But they attacked this guy for allegedly being like a sellout black man. He's the first black person to serve as attorney general in Kentucky. And he's also the first nominee to run for governor in Kentucky who's black. And so to bring his race into their criticism of him, I thought was despicable. It's a strange ad. It's a very strange ad. And it doesn't, you know, go in line with a lot of the messaging that I've seen from Black Lives Matter across the country. I think the approach typically has been, you know, this is the candidate that we would not like to see win. Here's what happened in Kentucky with the shooting of Breonna Taylor. Here's how the subsequent brutality of protesters in the streets in 2020 went under, you know, the attorney general's purview. Here's what we'd like to see from an attorney general. I think, you know, when you have that kind of factual basis, that storytelling, that here's what happened in our state, here's what we would like for not to happen, I feel like that's typically the approach that Black Lives Matter takes. And this ad feels strange to me. It, it honestly feels like it didn't even come from a lot of the, the main organizers of Black Lives Matter. I know that the organization is fractured quite a bit. I get that they want an attorney general that wants to bring justice. They're very upset about police, police brutality. I just don't know if this was a strategic way to do it. It feels counterintuitive. And I think that speaks to political silos. If you're in a, the state of Kentucky, you understand that you've got a you know diverse range of people that you're trying to appeal to. If this ad is just run targeted to the black community, fine. But if you're in your political silo, I can see this ad being listened to and saying, okay, yeah, this is a good ad. This will reach voters. This will change people's minds. But if you're actually aware of the electorate and who will see this ad, I think you would understand that it's divisive. And I think that's the problem with so many people living in political silos is that you might be counterintuitive pursuing an approach like this. Yeah, definitely. And this ad, I like that you called it weird because I had the same reaction actually listening to the yeah. voiceover. So they leaned very heavily on this um, like African-American vernacular in a way that feels put on, I would say. And that kind of added that additional tinge of this being like a very racial attack. And I thought that was a strange approach. Um, I don't know. It just didn't sound authentic to me, the voiceover. Um, it was very affected, I guess you could say. But um, 
I, I think that Andy Bashir should have denounced this. I mean, the fact that he is saying, like, oh, well, that's what the African-American community feels is such a cop-out. Like, this is one pack that has one particular political viewpoint, and to act like they speak on behalf of all black people as they're attacking a black man is pretty dishonest. Um, but Andy Bashir, I think, is worried because, to your point about the electorate of Kentucky, there's a very interesting contingent of what we would consider to be the Obama to Trump voter um, from the Midwest. That's that exists in Kentucky in a very large way. Um, if you poll Trump supporters, a lot of them really like Andy Bashir, mm -hmm. And so Trump has been getting more involved in the race in recent days. He uh, re-upped his endorsement of Daniel Cameron a couple of days ago. And apparently the Trump team is planning to run um, perhaps advertisements or, um, or radio adds on the fact that a recent Andy Bashir rally was overtaken by pro-Palestinian protesters, and he wasn't even able to really deliver his stump speech. Um, and that's troublesome for Bashir, because if Trump can convince his voters who like Bashir that actually the Trump vote is to vote for Daniel Cameron, then that's mm -hmm. going to shave off quite a bit of his crossover popularity, and not to mention the fact that polling shows that a lot of voters in this race are still undecided, double digits undecided, mm -hmm. which if you're an incumbent, that's a problem, because mm -hmm. the undecideds know who you are. They've had four years to learn about you. If they still don't know if they want to vote for you a week out from the election, then they're probably going to break against you. Yeah, it's interesting to, to make the jump from attorney general to governor. It's an interesting race for that reason. Also, you know, I can't say what the black community feels about this ad, but I can say that representation matters, right? Anyone who is in elected office, who is a member of your community, especially if it's an underrepresented one. I think about the type of women that run for office, Hillary Clinton being the most famous, uh, saying, you know, I'm running for all girls and women everywhere, cheesy stuff like that, which doesn't land with me because I care more about policy solutions. Right. I care more about how you represent the community. So I can see people being upset about the Republican attorney general's actions, that he didn't deliver for their community in the way that they wanted him to. I can see being upset about that. And if I was Bashir, I would just say, listen, this is my thinking on this. Uh, you know, do I agree with the way the ad went? No, representation's important. Do I wish we had representation for our communities that was more relevant to the issues as, you know, the, the black Americans maybe I know see, see them existing in Kentucky? Something like that. Uh, but I, to say nothing at all, I think is interesting, especially now that this is gaining more press. I think eventually we will get a statement. But it's not hard to say, you know, representation's important. I don't really support the, the tone of a lot of this ad, but I do see it's important that we have representation in government. And he could express concerns with how the attorney general has acted in the past, but it's also weird considering how they have to work together in Kentucky today. Yeah, it is, it is interesting that they do have a split party on between the governorship and the attorney general. Um, I, I think to your point about Hillary Clinton, um, I, that's sort of the same issue that I have with identity politics, which is that um, sometimes as a woman, or in this case as a black man, you're told that you have to have a certain policy position or else you're a traitor to your gender or to your race or whatever, or you're not 
accurately representing your block as if because you have a certain skin color or a certain gender that you are supposed to be a representative for every member of your community. And that's just not possible when you're taking a political position, which it's an inherently divisive thing to be on one side of the political aisle versus another. And so the ad was problematic to me, not because it said that he didn't do enough for black voters, but because of the step that it took in terms of denying that he was uh, basically a proud black man, like suggesting he was self-hating and that his position came from this place of um, not caring about the black community or hating himself or being an Uncle Tom. Like that's where it crosses a bridge too far for me. Yeah, I think the ad just being weird in itself and, and so far from the messaging of most organizers for black liberation that I know. You know, as a white person, I cannot tell the black community how they should fight for their freedom and reform and change. But I will say that many organizers I know with the Black Lives Matter group um, across the country, in LA especially, they talk about what happened. If you are mad at the attorney general for not taking greater action against the police, in 2020, make the ad about that. Right. And I think they have, you know, a really valid point. Uh, like we didn't see the police officers prosecuted to the extent that we would have liked. We didn't see the footage released in a timely manner. We didn't see a valid response to the protests uh, when we took to the streets because Breonna Taylor was murdered by the police. Like this ad, because it's so weird, feels dishonest. It feels, I don't want to say it, but it, it really does feel to me like someone like intentionally pushed this forward uh, to make the case more difficult for the Black Lives or Black Voters Matter action pack and that they were probably disconnected from a lot of Black Lives Matter organizers. Yeah, it, it reminded me of that statement that Joe Biden made on the campaign trail uh, where he said something like, if you don't vote for me, then you ain't black. And right. it's it's that kind of divisive yeah. message that tells people that they have to vote or think a certain way because of their uh, immutable characteristics that is wildly, wildly offensive. That's going to do it for us this week on Rising. Jess, it was great to be with you in person. I know. We're real. We're here in person. Thanks for watching, everyone. Be sure to like, share, and uh, subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those who like to listen while on the go, we are available wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye, y'all.